Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. You'll remember that Paul is at Ephesus and his ministry there has been very greatly blessed. Verse 11 um, in the same chapter tells us that God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought onto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. Paul had been, as you know, working with his own hands. In a rough, painful, tactile trade, and his sweat-soaked working overalls represented to the sick and the oppressed everything that was good and true about Christianity and about conversion to Christ. Men who were the total opposite from people like the sons of Sceva. But you see, in Ephesus, false religion is big business. I suppose it is still, even nowadays. And to illustrate that, Luke tells us about this very strange incident. So tonight, I'm going to introduce you to the sons of Sceva. We're going to look at it and see darkness depicted. And then darkness divided. And then darkness defeated. Darkness. We live in a dark world. Just how dark some of us don't know. If you look at verse 13, uh, it talks about the sons of Sceva. Certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists. Um, Ephesus was full of false religion, full of superstition. One of the superstitions that was held in those days was simply that every single sickness that a person had was caused by an evil spirit. And of course, sometimes that was actually true. For here in the text, we're going to meet a man who was literally possessed by an evil spirit. And the remedy in that case was to get that evil spirit away from him. But if a man or a woman was suffering from a physical illness, that too, in the superstitious minds of the ancient world, was attributed to the work of an evil spirit. We had to get rid of the spirit. And of course, for the exorcist to get rid of the spirit, there's a cost Professional exorcists in Ephesus and in other towns in the Roman Empire had a steady trade. Quack therapy for sick people who wanted to get better and are going to try anything for a cure. Now, not all of these were charlatans and hucksters. There must have been some of them who were very sincere in their beliefs. Being sincere, of course, doesn't make you right makes you naive. Sometimes the spells and incantations must actually have worked to some extent 
in order for them to be able to stay in business. You see, the human mind is a very strange thing indeed. Sometimes just simply the power of suggestion. What doctors will call the placebo effect can be a very powerful thing. And of course, people do get better simply by the healing process of the body. For all healing, ultimately, is the work of the Lord. It is God who heals us. Even when regular orthodox medicine intervenes, even when operations and surgical procedures have taken place, even where medications have been prescribed, it is the Lord who knits together the tissues, who sustains uh, the, the body and our lives until the preordained day of our death arrives. For obviously, as biblical believers, we believe that all of our days are in the hands of the Lord. Now, if you look at verse 14, you'll see that the seven sons of Sceva had a very unique additional selling point. Look at them for a minute. There were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew and chief of the priests. The superstitious belief was that these evil spirits, every one of them, had a name. Remember the man at the tomb of the Gadarenes. The name of the demon within him was Legion, wasn't it? For we are many, he said. All of these demons apparently had a name. And the exorcist who was exorcising them or charging for his work, he would pretend to have some kind of secret knowledge. He would maybe have a book of spells, and the book of spells would contain perhaps list of names that are more powerful than the name of that particular type of demon. So if he comes to a person perhaps who has, let's say, a persistent headache, he would be able to diagnose from his book of spells what the name of the demon was that was causing the headache. And then he would find in his book of spells a name that was more powerful than the name of the demon take having the headache for names equaled um, characteristics and, and natures. And so he would cast out the demon in the name of a greater demon, if you like. It's the way it kind of worked. One of the things that we find out about these seven sons of Sceva was that they were Jews. Not only were they Jews, they were the son of a priest. In fact, here he's referred to as a high priest. I doubt if he was a high priest in Jerusalem. I think he was just probably a charlatan. Was, was probably advertising himself, or they were advertising their services as being a priest above all priests. But here is this Jew, and they know, according to what they're saying in their advertising billboards, their unique selling point is that they know the greatest name of all. They know the name of the Lord God of Israel, don't they? There's some truth in this. 
Jews would never ever speak the actual name of God as revealed to Moses. If you look at your Bible and the Old Testament, you'll see that whenever you come to the word Lord, and this is the case in our metrical Psalms too, when you come to the word Lord, it's always written in capital letters. The word Lord in the English translations of the Bible is a substitute for the name of God. We use the, the Hebrew Adonai, um, Lord. We could use Yahweh or Jehovah, but the Jews would never pronounce the name of God. The name I am, that I am, that was given to Moses at the burning bush. It was considered far, far too holy ever to be spoken, ever to be uttered on the lips of a sinful man or woman. Right to this very day, pious Jews are blasé about blaspheming the name of Jesus, but they would never say the four-letter tetragrammaton, the YHWH, they would never attempt to pronounce that name of God that was given to Moses. Um, okay, here's an illustration. When Leonard Cohen, who is a Jewish-Canadian songwriter, now deceased, he wrote a poem about the Exodus. It's called Born in Chains. And later on, he it's a very powerful poem, and later on it became a song. And in that, if you haven't read his poem, Born in Chains, it's worth reading. Um... It begins like this. I was born in chains and taken out of Egypt. I was bound to a burden, but the burden it was raised. Lord, I can no longer keep this secret. Blessed be the name. The name be praised. He won't say God's name. He just talks about it as the name. And to this day, Orthodox Jews will talk about the name as being God. Now the heathens of Ephesus knew this, and these Jews were crafty enough to use this as a way to make a living as exorcists. They were going around selling their superstition. They were wandering Jews, vagabond Jews, selling their religious snake oil and telling people, look, we have the most powerful name of all. We have the name that is above all names, and we know what it is. And if you want rid of your diseases, we're the men to do it. And they came to Ephesus, and they set up shop. And then they heard of Paul. And they heard of his reputation. And they attributed the miraculous healings of Paul that Paul had been involved in to him rather than to God. If you look back at 11, you'll see that it was not Paul who healed these people. It was God wrought special miracles. God did it. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So these Jews decided that they would jump on the bandwagon. They would try and get a bit of Paul's success. They would think that Paul was one of them, somebody who was charging for making people better. We know different. 
We know that he was working with his own hands, that he was totally different from the snake oil salesmen who were peddling their false cures. They think if Paul is healing people in the name of this Jesus, that must be a very powerful name indeed. Let's do that. Darkness superstition depicted for us right here in the text seven sons of Sceva men scheming to take the things of God and to make money from them but let's see this darkness divided verse 14 to verse 16 one of the things you'll find out or you ought to know anyway about darkness and about satanic activity is that it is not united. The devil and his minions are not at peace with each other. They are at war with each other as much as they are at war with the church. Verse verse 14 to 16. So the Barskeva brothers have got their patient. Here we have it. Uh, The man in whom the evil spirit was. Verse, um, verse 14, rather, they, 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are they? It brought their patient presumably into a house because later on we find that they're cast out of the house. And they've brought him in and the exorcism begins and in the process of the therapy, they call upon the... I'm sure they had a whole ritual to go through. After all, they had to earn their money. And they call upon the evil spirit to leave the man. And they call upon them him to come out in the name of the Lord Jesus. They took upon them, says the Bible, to call over them which had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure thee by Jesus whom Paul preacheth. My goodness, would you look at that? A dissembling command, a lying command. We adjure thee by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth. Um, Verse 13. The brothers commanding the evil spirit to leave. The word adjure here means simply, in a judicial sense, we put you under an oath. We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. They did it in the name of the Lord Jesus who Paul preaches. There's no doubt here that they thought Paul was simply one of them, another shyster with a magic name. They're just about to be put right on that account. The dissembling command, the demons reply, verse 15. The evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know, Paul, I know, but who are ye? I wonder if that ever happened to them before. I wonder had the evil spirit actually ever spoken back to them before. It's a very interesting reply. Jesus, I know, Paul, I know. I know both those. But in the Greek text, the word know applied to Jesus is a different word from the word know applied to Paul. Uh, The Greek phrase 
ton Jesun genosco kai polon epistame. Um, so the word for Jesus, I know, is the word genosco, and the word for Paul, I know, is the word epistame. Now, what does that mean? just simply means that there's something different about the knowledge of Jesus and the knowledge of Paul that this evil spirit had. The word attached to Jesus is much stronger than the word know when applied to Paul. It might be something like, I know and I recognize and I acknowledge Jesus for who he is and I know about Paul. A weaker kind of a knowledge. Oh, the demon knew who Jesus was. These demons of darkness that are hovering over our land, and there are much of them. God bless the men and women who are standing on the streets witnessing against abortion. I I heard something interesting through the week. Do you know that there are abortionists? I, I, I have no evidence of this, so you have to take it as hearsay. But I heard that there are people doing abortions who actually enjoy their work because they are demonically inspired Satan worshippers. And for them, the killing of babies is nothing. Darkness. Those demons, when confronted with the Lord Jesus, they know who he is. They may not know you or me. They may not know whenever one of the secular organizations spoke and these people, they do a good job. But when they stand up and rationally argue against abortion and we support that, of course, uh, we we do support anyone who, who tells people that the killing of babies is wrong. But do you see... When you stand in the street and you preach Christ and him crucified, the demons tremble. That's why I say God bless those that are standing witnessing for Christ at things like that. The demons reply, I know Christ. I even know about I even know about Paul. Maybe the demon would even know about you and me. But he knows Christ. Preach the name of Christ against darkness. It's the name above every name. It's the name wherein there is victory. It's the name that will conquer and triumph. Whatever you do, lift up the name of Jesus in this dreadful, evil world. A dissembling command, a demonic reply, a dreadful result. Look at verse 16. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That evil spirit attacked them. Presumably the poor man who was suffering and had come for this treatment went berserk. And with supernatural strength he leapt upon the exorcists. He physically attacked them. He ripped the garments from them. They fled from that house. They fled wounded and they fled ashamed. Forces of darkness actually 
turning on each other. Just think how self-destructive the evil of this world really is. We look upon it. It's destroying itself. Darkness divided. A more positive note, finally, darkness defeated. In verse 17 to verse 19, we see how the effect this had, a greater effect this had upon the people of Ephesus. You would wonder why Luke would include a strange incident like this in the narrative of Acts, wouldn't you? Maybe it's just the eternal truth that the light of God always overcomes the darkness of the evil of this world. It has always been that way, hasn't it? I mean, in the darkest days of ancient Israel, even in the very days of Elijah, when darkness covered the land and Elijah sat in the deepest depression and lamented that he was the only God-fearing man left in Israel, the light was still shining. And God told him, Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel of all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, the false god, the god of darkness. Even in the medieval years, in the dark ages, in the medieval world when the darkness of Romish superstition was the official religion of Europe, God's light was still shining. And even today, the light of God still shines in the midst of the awful darkness of this world. There's been desperate shenanigans in the political scene. I don't listen to any broadcasts from the BBC. I hope you don't either. One of the best ways to defeat darkness is just to turn off the BBC. Well, I I sometimes, if I hear a topic that I want um, to find out what people are talking about, I'll download a podcast and listen to some of that sifted out. But I heard a man on a Nolan podcast complaining about one of the leadership candidates for one of the local political parties. He was absolutely irate. I don't mean Nolan, he was irate too, but I meant the other man, the the caller. He was irate about the fact that the candidate was what he called a young earth creationist. And he fumed And he shouted, this man's a bigot. So to me, believe what the Bible teaches makes you a bigot. Utter darkness, isn't it? Darkness. And yet the light of God and the light of the gospel is still shining in this land. John 8 and verse 12, Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. In the very deepest darkness, in the darkness of this pagan world, God's light will always shine. So let's look for a minute before we finish, and let's see the immediate and rather paradoxical effects of this 
internecine conflict and how God uses it to let the light shine. Verse 17. This was known to all the Jews and Greeks also dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. Listen. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. See, the gospel was widely published, wasn't it? Because of this. These people meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. This was all known to the Jews and to the Greeks, the Gentiles living in Ephesus. The entire population of Ephesus heard about this very strange incident that had happened. It must have been a topic of conversation in all the public areas, in all the streets, in all the marketplaces. It tells us that deep conviction gripped the population, fear fell on them all. There was a fear that came upon the population. What kind of a fear? I'm sure that the charlatans, the exorcists, were worried. Some of the local shopkeepers were rattled. It was wider than that. There was a fear of God that struck the fear of judgment into their hearts. There was conviction leading to repentance and conversion, and in Ephesus, leading to city-wide revival. It was like the widespread conviction that accompanies revival even to this very day. In the Great Awakening in the United States of America, Jonathan Edwards preached his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You know, Jonathan Edwards was no orator. He was even worse than me. Jonathan Edwards read his sermon like this in the darkness of the church. And it was two hours or so long and he read it in a monotone. And he warned his hearers that judgment was certain. And he called for repentance. And he compared them to a spider being dangled over a fire their very existence provoking God's wrath in his purity by their sinful, quoting Edwards, their sinful, wicked manner of attending this solemn worship. When Edwards reached the the sermon's climax with the word sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. The audience broke into loud shrieks and such wails of conviction of sin that he couldn't finish. Fear fell on them all. It would be too much to ask that we would pray in these darkened times for the fear of God to fall on our population. We're hearing a man's testimony. A man that walked along the roads one day on the way to his place of employment and he'd been to a gospel meeting the evening before and he was thinking in his mind about what he had heard. And along a country road, 
South Antrim. There and then he fell on his knees and could go no further until he had repented and had forgiveness for his sins. Fear. Fear fell on them all. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Those who were convicted repented of their, of their sin. Repentance and conviction of sin. It's never a nice experience. Many of you here will have experienced it. You've been terrified by the prospect of God's judgment day. Terrified of being cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And you can't rest and you can't sleep and you can't enjoy life. For conviction of sin is a massive burden on the sinner's back. But listen, it's necessary for conversion. In the recent gay conversion therapy debate at Stormont a few months back, some of the supporters of the motion spoke of how a biblical spoke of a biblical view of homosexuality and referred to it as sin, and how that made the poor gays uncomfortable and how it distressed them terribly. And the first thing I was thinking was, "Good, we want them to be distressed. We want them to be uncomfortable. We want them to know that they're sinners." We want them to come under conviction. We want them to know that a day will come when they'll stand before God and give account of their lives. That's what biblical preaching's all about, to convict sinners of their sin, to bring them to the point where they'll cast themselves upon the Lord for relief. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul writes, Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. And that's what happened here in Ephesus. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It was on everybody's lips, and many that believe came and confessed. And there's something interesting here. They showed their deeds. Do you see that? At the end of verse 18, that's important. Their confession was open. They were happy to come and to say, I've been converted. They showed where they'd come from. It was the fullness of their confession of sin. It wasn't just something they did themselves in their own bedroom. They went the second mile. They publicly testified to the huge changes that had occurred in their lives. And look at verse 19, because they made a complete break. Many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them publicly before all men. See, there's no going back, sure there's not. Many of those religious hucksters, those self-appointed exorcists, were wonderfully converted that time. They weren't going back to their sinful ways. And they gathered up all their books of spells and names 
and superstitions and brought them and publicly burned them. They had a huge bonfire and there they were with their piles of books all lined up and as each one got to the fire they would toss the books on book after book after book. The Greek text here suggests that they were aggressively throwing them into the fire. They were literally lifting their books by which they had made their living and they were firing them away. They were burning their bridges. What a conversion. What a marvelous conversion. When you burn your bridges and say, I'm a Christian now. I've been saved by God's grace. And there's no going back. And everything of this old world is going into the fire where it belongs. It's dross. Paul wrote about the converted sinners at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, when he says, And such were some of you, but ye were washed. Ye are sanctified, ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And there was a financial cost. I think it's interesting here that at the end of verse 19, It tells us that they counted the price of them. Now, books are very precious, very costly. And they found that the price of the books came to 50,000 pieces of silver. See, there's always a cost, isn't there? Following Christ. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Turn away from all those things. That's what's happening here. The burning of the books, the turning away from sin, was a costly business, but turn away we must. And lastly then, of course, the the Lord Jesus was glorified. Whenever souls are saved, the glory goes to God. It's never the work of man. Verse 17 has already told us that the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And then in verse 20, it says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. People started to read and talk about the scriptures, the word of God. It became the main topic of conversation. It became the point of debate in the city. The revival in Ephesus has taken this huge leap forward. More people has been saved. What started with just a handful of people in a little group is now citywide. And step by step, the revival is growing. Not everybody's happy about it. I would suspect before we're finished, there'd be a riot.